Everybody, welcome to episode 57 of the Bolt from the Blue podcast, and I've got two great guests with me. First of all, of course, we have Colin Savage. Colin, how are you doing, mate? I'm uh, good, thank you. As good as can be. I think the nerves are getting to me, though. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. We have Ray from Man City Fan TV. Ray, Ray, how are you doing? I am not too bad, Mike. Not too bad after a, a trip up uh, north to Burnley yesterday, um, sitting with the Burnley fans, uh, trying to be incognito, but a few people did recognise me. Uh, so I, I, I was hoping nobody would, but a few kids give me some dirty looks. Um, <laughs> but I got away with it. My goodness, a trip to Turf Moor. Every time I hear the name of that stadium, it it makes me think of uh, Bob Lord. I, I don't know, guys, yeah. if you, re- you remember... He was a, a man who, I uh, just read an, uh, an article about him from way back on the, on the Guardian there. They were just saying just, uh, that comparing him to, you know, Jose Mourinho. And they were saying, if you think that Mourinho was provocative, he's got nothing on Bob Lord. Those were the days. But guys, it was a very nerve wracking uh, experience for me. And, that, and I was just watching on TV from, from here in Korea. But we managed to do it. Now, it's very interesting, guys. They said that, well, there's no way that City will beat Spurs over two legs. And we did. Of course, we went out on away goals. And then they said, well, you're not going to beat United. Or you're not going to you know, gain all three points at United. And we did it. And then they, then, then they invested a lot of hope. In the fact that it's going to be Burnley. Burnley were going to do us. We have done that too. And now we are three games away from glory. We've got uh, Leicester. We've got Brighton. We've got the FA Cup final. And uh, those are going to be a fascinating uh, final uh, three games of the season. But let's start off with Burnley. And uh, let's start off with um, Colin. Colin, were you actually at this game or were you watching this on the, on no, the box? I, I was watching on TV with my brother and, and a friend and they were getting quite amused at my <laughs> increasing agitation. Yes, and uh, Ray, you as you, as you mentioned, uh, you were there. Was it your, your first trip to um, Turf Moor? My first trip to Turf Moor would have been back in... Ooh, um, I think it was 1990 or 1989. Uh, I went to watch Burnley versus Cardiff. I was at university and one of my friends was a Cardiff fan. And my father had some business dealings with Burnley. 
and a few business scenes with the clubs around the northwest. And uh, so I scored two free tickets to go to watch Burnley versus Cardiff. And uh, my mate made the mistake. I think Cardiff won that day. And he made the mistake of letting on that he was a Cardiff fan. And we got a little bit of grief. And uh, it's always a no-no, um, especially if, you, if you're in the home end and your team's won. You just stay quiet, look miserable and slink off. But uh, we got away with that that day. We were very close to getting uh, lynched in Burnley. Uh, this, uh, some six-fingered uh, mob uh, surrounded us, but I think we got away you with get, it. You get burnt at the stake at Burnley, not lynched. <laughs> Well, guys, very interesting situation going into this game. Uh, I'm just uh, reviewing the the lineup, Colin, and uh, we were people were worried about what, how we were going to deal against the 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 threat of of Ashley Barnes and and his buddy Wood up front with a big physical presence. And uh, the answer was pretty simple: you bring in um, Vincent Company, and he he had a one of those performances that that just makes you purr, Colin. What did you think about Vincent Company? <laughs> you can laugh. I laugh now, but um, whenever I see a company on the team sheet, uh, there's kind of two different emotions go through my mind. The first is he's he is the leader. There's no doubt. With him on the pitch, we are well a well led unit. Uh, and, and I've said before, one of my criticisms of David Silver as captain is, bless him, he's not a leader. But with company on the on the pitch, we've got our leader on the pitch. So that always kind of puts my mind at rest. On the other hand, on um, against United, he was getting caught out by Rashford getting in behind him in the first half. And I think we've all seen Vinny, he, he tends to get pumped up, he tends to try and show he's a leader. So he would get involved in a couple of stupid tackles early on. And of course, he got his traditional yellow card. And I think if there's a genuine criticism of Vinny, uh, and said this before, his distribution, his use of the ball, uh, has not been up to the standards we expect from, say, Stones and Laporte, who are absolutely brilliant with the ball at their feet. Vinny can be a very, very much hit and miss with the ball at his feet. But yes, I, I think, despite my nervousness after the initial kind of opening exchanges, oh yeah, he had a wonderful game. He was absolute rock at the back. He won everything. I, I saw some stats that he completed... Uh, he made made ninety something, completed ninety something percent of sixty odd passes. Well, initially, I, I was a bit nervous. He certainly eased my nerves later on in the game. Although, right at the end, about a minute, 90 seconds to go, he appeared to clatter into, a, I think it was Barnes or Ward, I can't remember which one. And my brother and I had a big argument about this. My brother said he didn't touch him. I said, you shouldn't give him the excuse to go down. Because when they got that free kick late on, and I was absolutely, my my um, my arse was beginning to twitch very much at that point, because I could see an equaliser coming with no chance to respond. So I was a bit annoyed with him at that point because you've got to keep your head in those situations but my brother said he didn't really touch him although I said my view was you can't give him an excuse mm-hmm. to go down in those sorts of things because that is exactly what they're looking for <coughs> so, so so that was the only that was the only thing really but yeah a, a mountain of a man at the back he was on uh, on Sunday let's ju- just uh, review the lineup uh, Ray so we had Ederson Company Walker Laporte uh, Double Silvers Zinchenko Gundogan Sterling Aguero and Sane we went into that first half Ray were you satisfied with yeah. the, the lineup going into the game? Absolutely. Couldn't argue about it. It was probably uh, our strongest um, starting eleven uh, Beforehand, obviously, we knew that Fernandinho wouldn't play. I was a bit worried that Gundogan might not play. Um, but it was with Zinchenko at left back, uh, front three of uh, uh, Aguero, Sterling and Sane. It's what we've been crying out for. 
um, with Sani starting the game. Um, he was very effective um, coming off the bench last game against United. And so we were, I think most fans were desperate for him to play because he's a wonderful player when he's on form. And sadly, I don't think he was on form on Sunday. <laughs> Sorry, let's talk about a little bit about that uh, first half. And uh, that was 45 minutes of um, the rising, steadily rising blood pressure. Colin, what did you think? It how, was. How, what was your, what, how, what were your feelings um, as the game began to progress? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, every game matters. The closer we get to that 38th game, the more the other games matter. And uh, it was, I think a lot of it was nerves. And you might say, oh, well, the players have been there before and, and, and you know, they don't get nervous. But if you remember, uh, in all the kind of kind of media stuff after the QPR game in 2012, I think it was one of the 9320 documentaries that City did, and it was the players' one. And Sergio, I think, said they were very nervous in that game. And you think, in that particular QPR game, we were the team with the best home record playing the team with the worst away record mm. if any game you could go into confident but of course it's the it's the import of the game isn't it it's what it meant that, that caused the nerves we know from Sergio's own admission that the players do get nervous in games like this and it certainly looked like they were nervous because Burnley unlike United on the on the previous Wednesday United in that first half did try to hurry and hustle us a little bit uh, Burnley weren't really doing that but occasionally put a high press on when the ball was at the back but as soon as we broke that, they they fall back um, into that. They'd have those two banks of four that Sean Dyche loves. Um, so, so, you know, we had room to play in front of them. But, um, it, again, it was very... Very reminiscent of the first half at Old Trafford. Misplaced passes, misunderstandings between players. Uh, Sane was particularly getting frustrated, you could see. Uh, and I think that affected him. He, he doesn't, I don't think he quite has the mentality of some of the other players who can put them, you know, all right, get a bit frustrated, but work hard, work a bit harder. I think Sane just goes into flat mode, I think, and, and it doesn't help him. And I think that showed in the first half, and I think Pep realised it. He struggled to think of anyone who had a decent game in that first half because it was even Sinchenko the normally most reliable player I don't think he got a pass on target and, and we just seem in a bit of a um, we just seem to be afflicted by nerves in that first half uh, obviously Burnley didn't make it easy for us but we knew that we knew that was going to be the case they were I don't think they were mathematically safe or were they but they were 99% mathematically safe if that makes sense so um you know, they, they weren't fighting for a, a point or even three points. We've, we'd beaten them 5-0 in two separate games. They'd not had a shot on target, I don't think, in either of those two home games. We knew they would make it tough for us, but I think we also knew that they weren't going to be peppering our goal with shots. Um, so it was still, I wasn't surprised in some ways that the first half was a bit of a grind, but it, it was a bit disappointing to see that it, it wasn't Burnley who were causing us problems, it was also was causing us problems. Yeah, Ray, I mean, we were, in the first half there were spells of sloppiness and passes breaking down and moves breaking down. Does it concern you just uh, the way that we're starting games at the moment? We've had so many games this season where we've uh, scored goals early uh, within the first few minutes so so many and then we've had uh, games at the other extreme where we've been sloppy with the passing it's a mix between sometimes you think is it nerves either being lackadaisical and you can be 
you can appear casual. When it works, it's great. When it doesn't work, it looks like a days ago. I think Burnley were actually safe at the start of the game. I think they sent a tweet out to say they were safe. I think uh, after Cardiff were surprising to be beaten by Fulham, and they, they couldn't catch Burnley. So, you know, I was hoping that Burnley would turn up relaxed. And I knew Sean Dyche wouldn't let them, but I'd hoped in their mind they would be a little bit more relaxed. But you could see from <laughs> very early on, they were, they were very physical going into the tackles, wasting time as normal, looking for anything they could. And, you know, City, it was that sloppiness. It does concern you, but I think this season we've come to get used to it and we know we're playing to the end and half time is only half time. Pep will get the lads in and he'll, he's got to change and he changes things around and they'll come out with a different spirit and a different mindset and attitude in the second half. And I think that's what we did uh, on Sunday. Colin, were there, were there any key moments for you in that particular first half? It seemed to go by obdurate and difficult as, as Burnley, where I don't remember too many threats from them in that first half. Well, I think there was there were a couple of key moments for me, really. One was was a Burnley threat, because Carl Walker had the ball, was coming out of defence, wasn't really under any pressure, but he sort of slipped. It, and there was no one near him at the time, and I think the, the Burnley winger McNeil, I think, um, in chasing him, stood on his hand, uh, and the ball came back to Burnley, and it came through to Chris Woods. But fortunately, his touch was a bit heavy, uh, and Edison managed to get out to the edge of the area and smother it. And, and, and you're thinking at that point that would have been a typical Burnley-like goal to give away. That set kind of the the, the nerves jangling and the and the blood pressure up a notch. Uh, but that that was, I think, the only major threat they had. Uh, and yeah. of course, the other one was, from our point of view, was we didn't have that many attempts on goal. I don't think in that first half. I think oh, we had two very weak shots. But it, it's the one that David Silva managed to make mm. a complete botch of and I think we've said this before so I apologise for saying it again the one the only thing you could ever criticise David Silver for was he seems to go faint when he sees the whites of the whites of the eyes of the back of the net <laughs> but he had a great spell this season beginning of this season and, and maybe a bit last where he couldn't stop scoring you know he, he really was taking those chances and taking them well but he lately seems to have gone back to that frightened you know I'll disintegrate if I hit it first time and and he just, the ball came to him and it was, we'd managed to work it for once. Uh, I think, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, Bernardo or Carl Walker on that side. Gundogan passed it Gundogan. to Bernardo. Gundogan yeah. passed it out to uh, Bernardo on the right. Yeah, uh, and Bernardo, I think, played it into to David Silva, who was brilliantly placed, but he just lost, the ball came in. Instead of hitting it first time, it, I think it was one of those where he was in two minds. You know, one mind is, do I hit it first time? The other is, do I take a touch to control it? And in doing that, he got mixed up, he fell between two stools, and the ball kind of sort of went past him, he's trailing like, and it took him a second to um, gather himself, and then by that time the chance had gone. Ray, was there anything memorable, uh, apart from those moments that Colin mentioned, anything memorable for you in that first half? There was a couple, there was uh, Bernardo got free on the right, but I think he failed to capitalise, um, I think if, that, if I'm right, he should have hit it earlier, and uh, he, he came inside and um, ended up with a weak shot. And I think there's an Aguero moment on about the 40th minute where he came in from, I think he was operating at that point on the left and he came across, um, I was well outside the box and he hit a curling shot, but that was well wide. You know, you were hoping he'd got enough bend on it, but obviously he hadn't. It just kept sailing wide. And it was, it was a first half of um, very few chances for either side. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Colin, what happened, do you think, in the uh, half-time break? Was it um, a tactical switch? Was it a half-time rousing pep talk? Things did change after the break and into the second half. Uh, what would you put the change down to? Well, I think, um, you know, Pep, he's not the, one of the good, well, he's not the best manager in the world, or certainly one of the best, or if not the best, for no reason. And I think one of the reasons he is, is because he, he has the ability to calm the players down, or, or to fire them up, um, maybe to get under the skin a bit, but also to make those little tactical changes that he's been watching that game, he knows what the issue was. And I think to go back to the lineup, then when we all saw it, we thought, great lineup. But actually, it wasn't working because Sane, Sane and Davis Silver weren't working as a as a pair, which they can do, which they usually do, maybe because they've not played together for a while. So Sane wasn't wasn't the problem, I think, for that game because we knew Burnley would uh, crowd us out. And I think what Pep seemed to do, change it round, was he, he he put Bernardo more out on the right. He put Sterling more into the centre. So I think we had a bit of a kind of an overload in the centre instead of being spread out on the wings where Burnley could deal with us quite easily. And that did seem, for the first couple of minutes of the second half, were a bit like the, the previous 45, where a couple of times we gave the ball away and looked ineffectual. And then suddenly all gloriously kicked into gear and, and we went up with it. We went up into overdrive and we started putting the pressure on. We started finding the passes. People started making the runs. Uh, and I think that little tactical change um, and, and don't expect me to don't ask me to explain why it made a difference but that little perhaps you know Bernardo's cleverness coming in from the right uh, rather than uh, Sterling wasn't Sterling really wasn't having the best game uh, out on the out on the wings Sane certainly wasn't having a very good game Aguero was getting through a fantastic amount of work but not seeing the ball much so I think Pet just had a look had a look at that first 45 minutes and decided we needed a slightly different approach and that was to put Bernardo out wide and Sterling in and, and perhaps it forced the Burnley it, it, it kind of forced the Burnley defence or we, we asked different questions of the Burnley defence by doing that and, and they struggled to answer them to be honest Ray was that how you saw it how did you uh, see these changes taking effect well yeah I mean with Bernardo moving out right cutting in uh, Sterling operating more centrally um, and I think we had uh, probably a, a, a lot of chances in the first five or six minutes of that second half and I'll go through a few of them where we had Bernardo cutting in from the left he, he played the ball to Sterling who was I think just inside the box Sterling just controlled it practically dead and Aguero came running on running into the box took the ball away from Sterling and uh, he had a good near post shot um, and he made he sh- a save that he should have made he parried it away uh, within a few seconds we had a handball claim when Bernardo shot from outside the box I think it was Ashley Barnes yeah uh, the most yeah, it was um, the most popular avatar on Merseyside, <laughs> side of Merseyside, on the red side. So yeah, to me that looked a nailed-on penalty. Uh, his arm was at the side. He, he, you know, his body seemed to move towards the ball. And if your arms at your side and your body's moving towards the ball and it strikes you on the arm, to me that was a nailed-on penalty. I can't see yeah. it any other way. It was far more of a penalty than the Otamendi one against Schalke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and the commentators, the commentators on the TV. Or called it as a clear penalty. Yeah, it, it is as clear as um, and, night and day. And the referee had a good, should have had a good view of it. <laughs> the referee wasn't giving that. And then uh, we had the, um, and then only a minute later we had a crossing from Zinchenko to Laporte, 
And unfortunately, his header was a little bit weak. It was down into the ground, but it, I think he took the pace off rather than put the pace on. Um, and then a couple of minutes later, we had a scramble in the box and uh, Heaton saved from about eight yards from a Bernardo shot. So we were at that stage, it was like, this is coming. The pressure has got to tell soon because, you know, you don't get four or five chances in, in as many minutes, um, without something, uh, giving from the defense because they were on the ropes. There's a lot of mad scrambles, um, to, to protect their, um, their goalie and their, uh, the goal. And, uh, it was, it felt, um, it, it was just a matter of time. We got the goal in the 63rd minute. This was a very interesting one. Uh, Colin, could you talk us through this? Yeah, well, <laughs> it certainly wasn't um, the most spectacular goal we've scored. Oh, no. It could well be one of the most important. Um, I mean, again, the ball came in from Bernardo, I think. Aguero uh, was kind of closely marked by the Burnley players, and the ball seemed to bobble up at first. But he somehow seemed to manage to turn. Didn't get the best shot away. Uh, it kind of looped towards the goal. Uh, one of the Burnley players cleared it out the goal mouth, and... Um, Kind of, we wait. It was a bit like the VAR moment against Spurs, uh, but I didn't. I, at, at the time, I didn't think it had gone in. But all of a sudden, the referee pointed, looked at his Fitbit on his wrist, and pointed to the to the centre circle. Uh, and of course, when they the camera camera um, angles were shown and the, and the goal decision system, it was twenty nine millimeters over the line. <laughs> um, whether we'd have been given that without the goal decision system, I doubt. Um, but you know, fortunately, the technology did come did come to. Our, our rescue and it was uh, given us a goal <laughs> now, now we, we've talked about perhaps our season depending on penalties so the Mares penalty missed at Liverpool Aguero penalty missed at, at Spurs in the Champions League but it could well be that the title comes down to the goal decision system and to four centimetres because the Liverpool attempt the Stones cleared off the line oh, was yeah. 11, cent, 11 millimetres short of being a goal uh, and this one was 29 millimetres over the line. So 40 millimetres, 4 centimetres, uh, could could bring us the title. Yeah, exactly. Ray, did you see any response from, uh, from you know, manager of the year, Daesh and his Burnley team to that goal? <laughs> I've got to say this, just before we scored, just before we scored, the Burnley fans were chanting, where Burnley FC will play how we want. <laughs> in response, because it was, they were, it was, you know, anti-football, um, really. Um, you know, they, they might have had two men up top, up front, but they, they were playing, you know, that football from the dark ages but at the end of the day it, football is football you're on the pitch and people can play however they like and you just got to to get yeah, for survival for and, and if you don't mind me coming in here I wouldn't want to watch top football every week but I think you've got to give credit to Sean Dyke because Burnley are a very very well organised team yeah. and I think we saw that on Sunday I think we took maybe the, the Gabriel Jesus chance later on those defenders converged on that goal to stop try and stop the ball and that was brilliant organisation they knew exactly what they were doing um, and you know in everything they did and I've said this before um, particularly last season when Burnley came to the Etihad what surprised me was they were able to execute the high press uh, time and time again and a full a proper press not just a token uh, forwards pressing against the defender you know pressing up against the defenders and then everyone else you know back in their own half it was a proper press and I was really impressed that Sean Dyche could get Burnley to play that way because it's not their natural style I don't think mm -hmm. so yeah, of course, it's anti-football. I wouldn't want to watch that, you know, 
given the it, it, it's like um, you know cold leftovers compared to a, a, a Michelin star uh, tasting course being served to you uh-huh. when you watch City. But you've got to give the guy credit for getting the very best out of the resources he's got to get twenty eight points in sixteen games, which is what they had before we played them. Is very very good going, and you, you're not going to. I think if if I'm right, in the second half of the season, Burnley would be sat in fifth. So yeah. you know, for all these people who before the game said we'll win five nil and four nil and whatever, it was a tough tough game. Um, and you know, the last. Uh, 15 or 20 minutes, it was nerve-wracking. Uh, I think we had another great opportunity that uh, Colin alluded to there on 75 minutes where Walker, uh, great cross-field ball to Jesus on uh, who's on the left, and he took it in his stride, cut in. Yeah, that was uh, beautiful. Past the defender who misjudged it. Uh, took, it went past Heaton, cut inside again, and had a, a shot, and that was cleared off the line. Uh, Carter being far away from being another goal. And as Colin said, the Burnley defenders were prepared to put their bodies on the line, and two of them died for that one to try and save it uh, from going in. Um, and they, they really give everything for the cause. And I, I think they, they have to. And the last 15 minutes after that, Every time Bernie got the ball, they were just pumping it up, up top, um, looking for the flick-ons, looking for free kicks. Um, I don't think this was a free kick, the one in, in the last minute. I, th- I thought he got the ball at the time, uh, but he didn't protest too much. So maybe he didn't. But I, 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 like Colin said, whether he did or he didn't, the referee, if you want, if he's looking to give something uh, on the def- and the attacker's looking to go down and get something, it's kind of tackled that, you know, is, is liable to um, have a foul called against you. So so, um, but it was very nerve-wracking, uh, I think. You know, some people I spoke to after the game said they couldn't watch the last few minutes. Uh, they were that nervous. Um, but, uh, you know, I had uh, every faith in the guys. 20th uh, clean sheet of the season for Edison. Uh, no mention, sadly, in uh, much of the press about that, uh, which was quite unlike Friday night when it was a big hoo-ha of a story uh, that uh, a goalkeeper from not too far down the East Lanks Road had got his 20th clean sheet of the season. And that was a big hoo-ha. Edison, you know, quietly, uh, he got his 20th clean sheet. So I was confident uh, towards the end of the game that I thought we would hold out. We didn't deserve, honestly, we didn't deserve for Burnley to score a goal since he hadn't had a shot uh, on target in the whole game. They hadn't had a corner in the whole game. We had at least 20 shots on and off target. We were the dominant team, um, you know, 60 or 70 odd percent possession. In all honesty, they didn't deserve an equaliser late on, and I didn't think they'd get it, and quite thankfully they didn't. I think, to give us credit, to give us credit, defensively, we cope really well with the yeah. Chris Woods, uh, Ashley Barnes um, scenario, uh, which I think p- perhaps hasn't got mentioned uh, in many places. Um, we had a plan to, to cut down the distribution to them and deal with it when it got there, and, and thanks to Vinny, it worked um, very, very well. Ray, did you think that City were interested in his second goal, or or were they confident in seeing that out? Um, I think it's the same as the last few games. When once we've got ahead, it's like we don't, you know, we. It's that game. I think someone said to me, it's game management. But the game management starts a bit too early, and uh, no one really likes that game man- management at one uh, one nil. Uh-huh. Um, don't mind it at two nil. You know, we were, you know, we got to that stage where we were time wasting a little bit. Uh, there's no denying that. Uh, we got, you know, putting defenders on. Um, and Sean Dyche after the game said, you know, it was pleasing to see that Pet was uh, shouting to our play, 
is to take the ball into the corner, um, just to waste time. Yeah, uh, it's not like him, not not like him to give give himself a lot of praise, but um, <laughs> uh, he certainly reveled in 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 that uh, Colin seeing Pep Guardiola telling his players to put it in the corner. Yeah, I I think we lost our heads a bit in that last few minutes. Uh, to pick up what Ray said, we're quite capable of keeping the ball in the middle of the field, uh, and Burnley, you know, weren't desperately looking for you know survival didn't depend on it they weren't throwing bodies forward looking for an equaliser uh, and, and there was one point where I got absolutely it was tense enough in those last yeah. few minutes when uh, Gundogan played the ball aimlessly up the field giving it back to Burnley and I was absolutely my brother and, and, and the, our friend Barry were, were going absolutely um, well I, laughing at me <laughs> standing up shouting what the have you done that for you know and we did I think it's another sign of the nerves that we did lose our heads a bit in in a, a kind of not kind of running around doing stupid things but we just didn't we weren't, we weren't playing the way we can play. Um, you know, we should have been able to hold on to that ball for five minutes the way we normally play, rather than going down into the corner. And it, it all looked a bit silly to me. And it all looked a bit, it all smelled a bit of panic and yeah. nerves. Mm-hmm. I don't mind going into the corner and keeping the ball. I, I do mind, as Colin says, when we just lump the ball and... Uh, it happened on three or four or five occasions where we just hoofed the ball out. But some of the hoofing of the ball had no thought attached. So we were kicking it, let's say, 40 yards into the middle of the pitch where the Burnley, Burnley might have had a couple of defenders. They get the ball and they just pump it back. I don't see why we couldn't have kicked it 60 or 70 yards towards the corner flag or put it out wide. If you're going to waste time and just leather the ball forward, do it properly and waste time rather than just give it directly back. So there was, you know, maybe when our players aren't used to just leathering the ball to waste time, maybe we should practice that for the next game. Yeah. And yeah, and to pick up, again, to pick up what Ray said, if you're going to do that, put the ball out of play uh, and <laughs> yeah. throw it, because that, that allows you to move up the field. Yeah, and it's like it's a bit like rugby, where you kind of kick the ball out into, into touch, and you've moved up the field, and you've got a, almost a set piece, forty, fifty yards away from your own goal, and, and you've got plenty of space between you and uh, and the goal. So, um, and you've got the chance to put the pressure on the Burnley players much higher up the pitch. Um, uh, but but I say just aimlessly hoofing it downfield um, is brainless because you just allow them to hoof it straight back uh, without being able to put any pressure on them. Uh, Ray, uh, a lot of people said, and of course I think we all agree, that it was hard to pick out somebody um, who was particularly prominent for us in the first half, but uh, in the second half, who do you think were the standout performances from, from City? I think Bernard had a good second half. Um, you know, just looking at um, what happened at the beginning of the second half uh, with his pass, with his movement and his passing, and he always looked dangerous working with Sterling on the right. Um, obviously, Sergio scored the goal. Um, trying to think, I mean, I'd probably. I'd probably say Bernardo because it was uh, his pass to Aguero um, that uh, we scored from. And uh, he had a couple of shots that the goalie saved, uh, passes to Sterling and the work he did and the overall running in the second half. I'd probably go for him. In the first half, I'd go for Edison for that uh, early save, uh, which was uh, much needed. And once again, generally, Edison was very good with his passing. And there was one moment that we missed in the first half where he pinged the ball 
uh, way over the Burnley defence to Aguero, who was he, you know, he wasn't offside because it's from the goal kick, and he got to Aguero, and he, he just didn't control it properly, and suddenly four defenders converged on him. So I think Edison had a, you know, he did what he needed to do, um, and it, you know, sadly in Virgil Van Dijk's case, doing what you need to do um, makes you world class. Um, <laughs> but same with David De Gea. Meow. Ed, Edison, Edison did what he needed to do. So yeah, I think overall for me, Bernardo was my man um, for the what for the, what he did in the second half. David Silva played well as well, controlling the tempo, and uh, you know he. He, he he's still the man for me, David Silva. He's been oh. significantly better the last couple of games, yeah. looking much closer to the David Silva of old. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's as you say, form is temporary and uh, class is permanent, and he's st- he still oozes class. And so the two silvers for me were probably uh, the standout performers. Colin, how about you? For for you, well, well, who was the man of the match talk- or the men of the match? Well, we talked about yeah, we talked about Vinny. I think he had an immense game uh, after my initial nerves and that last minute thing but player I pick out is um, Kyle Walker and um, because obviously one of the instructions to him uh, well I assume at half time was get forward because Inchenko was Inchenko was the guy we'd normally expect to be the, the kind of the, the forward fullback but he wasn't having a great I think the nerves had definitely got to him uh, and Pep I, I think Pepper said to Walker make those runs so while Burnley is sitting back uh, Walker was made made a few of those surging runs mm-hmm. forward uh, on a number of occasions. He played that wonderful curling ball to Gabriel Jesus, who you know, nearly scored from. Uh, only the, the Burnley defenders throwing themselves at it prevented what would have been a wonderful goal. Uh, uh, but two or three occasions, he um, definitely caused panic in the Burnley defence by using his pace and being very direct. And running at them, um, so, so I'd, I'd give Carl Walker uh, an honourable mention. Um, I don't think Gundogan didn't have one of his finer games. Uh, Leroy just wasn't at the races. I don't think uh, Raheem Sterling had one of his better games. Uh, Aguero worked hard, but um, yeah. So, so for me, companies the, the star man, and um, I'd give an say honourable a gold star for Carl Walker as well. Yeah, I totally agreed there, guys. And, um, Ray, uh, it's very gratifying that, uh, Kyle Walker seems to be a man who's been quietly, uh, you know, coming into the form of, uh, of, of the previous season. And, um, he, he really looks aggressive. He looks like he's really got his mojo back, basically. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, he had a spell out of the team and I think that was deserved. I don't think he was, uh, anywhere near good enough. And Danilo came in. A few games, Kyle Walker. He's obviously he's got the pace to burn. He's shown strength. He's shown a little bit more nous. And uh, I didn't know he had so many crossfield passes in him. Uh, I think that's a bit new. And as Colin said, um, you know, running down the wing, you know, he showed his pace again, getting crosses in, um, causing trouble, and uh, being uh, more of a, um, an attacking threat, which I don't think he has been enough uh, this season. And it, it, you know, it gives us that extra threat from both wings rather than uh, just the left hand side. But he looked like Mendy on the right on the right side, yeah. didn't he? Yeah, yesterday. Yeah, Colin. City's response to games after going out in the uh, Champions League uh, quarterfinal and their ability to scrap it out and battle it out and and try to you know really grit their way to these kinds of wins are is extremely encouraging, isn't it? With uh, with the, these final two games to go. 
Uh, well, it is because there have been some tough games, and I think that we—I think it has been a reaction to the Champions League, but I think we did let ourselves down a little bit uh, in both those games. But the, you know, they obviously have got there's a big target to aim at. Uh, Liverpool pressuring us probably uh, played a part in that. The fact that we're still in sight of a domestic treble—that's uh, played a part. Perhaps again. How much to do it is to do with Pep, I'm not sure. But if it is, he's done a great job in getting inside their heads and really motivating them because uh, they have. It's not been not always been the prettiest football, but God, God knows they've grafted these last few games. Yeah, they have indeed. And uh, as the the, the final minutes uh, ticked down, Ray, you could almost hear a million scouts' hearts breaking. And uh, <laughs> in in fact, they had uh, they'd put a, a lot of hope, hadn't they? Uh, Ray in the fact that Burnley were the team who were going to hand them the basically hand them the title by taking points off us and reports uh, that you've probably seen on Twitter of people changing their avatars to pictures of Ashley Barnes and and, and now of course it's it's Jamie Vardy that they're doing this with and you know it's 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 sad it really is sad <laughs> um, that they have to that they have to do this I mean and and some of them are not kids. Some of them are grown, grown men in the forties and fifties, and I, I, you know, I'd, some of them have, have learned how to use um, uh, computers well enough to, to change the avatars. It's it, it's just silly, and and then you know, people begging for favours from Burnley. Let your own club do the the hard work, you know. And I mean, the, the fact that I've got a fat Spanish waiter as my avatar at the moment has got nothing to do with <laughs> um, Jamie Vardy or um, Ashley Barnes. <laughs> I'm just. Looking- Looking at these post-match comments, uh, Colin, this is uh, Sean Dyche. I thought we had a real go, and that's pleasing from a mentality point of view. We took the game on, and we are not going to beat them at their game, so we had to make it awkward. We did that well, and... uh, (laughs) But you had no shots on target. I had no shots on target in the third game against City. (laughs) Ridiculous. But but this is the, you know, credit to Sean Dyche for organising his team very well, as we said. But this is what we faced all season, and teams are playing us at home, even. Uh, uh, you know when we're the away team and um, you know circling the wagons uh, and they don't do that for any other team I don't think they do it for Liverpool Um, Mm. and, and, and this is kind of how we're the fear they have of us uh, in the league. I mean, 100 points last season, you know, potentially 98 this season. Uh, those, uh, you know, we talk about the fear factor at the Etihad. There's a fear factor when we go to away grounds now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's incredible, really. I mean, it really is a tribute to Pep that, that we are a feared team. And even teams on their own turf will you know, bring 10 men behind the ball, 10, 8, 8, 9, 10 men behind the ball constantly to try and frustrate us. They're not trying to win the game. They're just trying to avoid a thrashing mm-hmm. Ray that's uh, 20 uh, sorry 12 Premier League games one on the bounce 27 goals scored conceding only three and uh, uh, really not going to the wire as much as I thought because if we, if we, if we could just um, move forward and do a little preview um, I I, re- I don't really have anything that worries me at all about the Brighton game apart from the fact that it would be the last game of the season but uh, uh, Liverpool have turned Liverpool fans have turned their 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 hopes now to Leicester particularly after that three uh, 0 win against Arsenal and also the fact that they they're quite right in in saying that uh, Vardy is, is 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 on fire but for me 
I feel that Leicester are open in the way that they play, and so City fans shouldn't be fearing that game as much as they, the, some of them really are. What do you think about the prospects against Leicester? At least that's at, that's at the Etihad, isn't it? That's right. I mean, when you look at it, um, in eighth position now with 51 points, and uh, they're only three points behind Wolves. They've got a slightly better goal difference. So they could still be looking for a Europa League spot, uh, joining quite probably Man United and Arsenal in the Europa League. So that puts a little bit more uh, pressure on City. Um, they've had a, a decent run in the last five games with Leicester, where they've won three, drawn one and lost one. So, you know, they're still challenging. They still turned the corner a bit under Brendan Rodgers. But we're at home, Fortress Etihad. <laughs> My mind goes back a bit to 2012. where But we've won just about every game at home. You know, we've lost one game in the league against Palace, one game in the Champions League um, against Lyon. Um, and when you go through those stats, when you see we've let three goals in 12 games, it just makes me uh, shocked and puzzled why we let three goals in against Spurs in one game Ugh. and in 12 games we've only let three. But look, let's be honest. I mean, we're at home uh, against Leicester. We've beaten just about everybody this season. You know, Leicester, one of the few teams that beat us. I'm, I'd expect a, not a comfortable win because Leicester are a dangerous team. They've still got um, several of the players who won the, uh, the league title a few years back. Uh, and they're still very, very dangerous and very good. But I'd expect us to, to beat them by a couple of goals. And uh, that's the feeling that you get from Pep, that we've we've got through some of the, the most difficult matches. The derby, even though the quality of United just wasn't there, they're in a different league quality-wise. We've beaten Bright, uh, sorry, Burnley, very tough opposition at their ground. Um, not going to give us an inch, apart from an inch and a half, I think, whatever, um, for, the, for the goal line technology. And then... The last two games, on paper, look easier games. And fingers crossed they are because I think some City fans' nerves, they're torn to shreds at the moment. It's very tense, uh, very difficult to watch um, these games uh, when you're only one goal ahead. Colin, how are your feelings going into the game against Leicester and how much of a, a danger to our title hopes are they? Well, um, unless they're all stricken down with gastroenteritis, Obviously, um, they are going to be a danger. I, I think, uh, as Ray said, I wasn't worried about United because they were shambles. And it was quite clear last Wednesday that if we came out in that second half and played like we can play, they played quite well in that first half overall. That was probably about close to the best they could play. We played close to the worst we could play. So I knew if we came out in the second half at Old Trafford and played close to the best we could play, we would sweep them aside. I was worried about Burnley for the reasons that we saw. They're a very well-organised, tough team to break down. Um, Worried about Leicester for a different reason, I think Ray alluded to it, is that Burnley weren't really a threat in front of our goal, but Leicester could be. And we've lost once to them already this season. And Brendan Rodgers, you know, whatever you think of Brendan Rodgers, uh, is a clever coach, a good coach, and uh, they've got some good players. So, but it will be more open. They will, they will uh, I don't imagine, they'll, they will have 10 men behind the ball. There will be space for us. Uh, I'd like to see the same starting 11 that we had yesterday because I think that could do some damage against Leicester in the way that it couldn't do it against uh, Burnley because they will set up I think they will set up differently they've got far more of a chance of scoring against us than Burnley have but I think in doing that uh, we know the way Leicester used to play is of course they, they would concede possession and look to hit you on the break which I think would have been quite dangerous to us in this situation under Brendan Rodgers they do Brendan Rodgers plays football I think you've got to give him that by the fact he's a Creep. Um, <laughs> his team, 
his teams play football, uh, and that will should be uh, some help to us in in getting at them. But I, I'm still worried about this game. I say, well, perhaps we're perhaps we're wrong to write off Brighton, but there is nothing to fear from Brighton. But we we'll that against QPR um, seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the, the the thing about Leicester and Wolves is, as I said, Leicester are only three points behind Wolves. And uh, they'll have a better idea of uh, the chances of getting uh, seventh spot because uh, Wolves are playing Fulham yeah. on Saturday. Uh, now you could say, well, if Wolves are six points clear, would Le- and Leicester got two games to go, they have to win them both. So they might it might force them to come out at City even more if they need to win the game because they can look at it as well. Wolves are playing Liverpool the last game of the season. If they lose, Leicester playing Chelsea. If if Leicester win both their games and Wolves win one and lose one, which is quite reasonable to beat Fulham, lose to Liverpool, then Leicester will come seventh. So there's still something on the line um, for uh, for Leicester to chase. Uh, yep, whatever absolutely. happens. Um, and, and then you look at... Um, uh, at Cardiff, you now the chances of Cardiff getting out uh, and uh, dragging Brighton into more trouble. But Cardiff are playing um, Crystal Palace on Saturday, and Brighton are away at Arsenal now. Despite Arsenal being absolutely pants the last few games, they are generally very good at home. So you can see possibly Cardiff winning, Brighton losing, and you get to the last game of the season where Cardiff needs to win, and uh, Brighton need Brighton might need to win. Um, you know. Uh, you just don't know, but Cardiff are away at Man United, so <laughs> easy three points for Cardiff uh, last game of the season. Um, <laughs> it just could be, it could be that, you know, our last two teams, even though on paper they look more comfortable than the uh, previous two games, they've still got, you know, potentially something to play for. Now, for me, I just hope Fulham's fantastic spurt of form where they won the last three continues and they win their next game uh, against Cardiff and Cardiff are relegated making Brighton safe and Brighton might take it easy on us they might be at the seaside already um, although they're not far from it anyway (laughs) and they might give an easy game last game of the season but you know look at City you can't take anything for granted and I certainly won't be. Uh, and I think um, it's interesting because people are saying, um, obviously Brighton could, if, if Cardiff don't pick up uh, three points against... Three, but yeah, the goal difference is so much worse. If Cardiff don't pick up three points against uh, Palace this weekend, then they are down. Um, mm-hmm. But... So is it better to have Brighton safe um, or is it better to have Brighton still under threat and needing a point or three to, to stay up because if, they, if they're desperate they will have to come at us and that will suit us quite nicely so QPR needed uh, at the at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They needed but, potentially to win. So, um, you know, personally, I'd like Brighton to be safe. Uh, and um, I think I prefer that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and just throw the game because yeah. you know I'm sure they don't want Liverpool to win the league either. Ray, what do you yeah. what do you think about uh, Liverpool's uh, final run in? Because of course they've got. Um, They've got Newcastle away, sandwiched in between games against uh, Barcelona, and they finish up against Wolves. And and uh, from from the point where everyone was saying about how much easier uh, Liverpool's run-in was compared to City, it looks to have changed uh, completely now, and, and they seem to have quite a tricky run-in themselves, don't they? Yeah, well, well, it, it does look like that on paper, but I said a few games ago, I expect Liverpool, I think, to win their remaining games. I think I said that with uh, five or six games to go. Uh, I just can't see them. They're in that zone now. They've got a bit of luck. They're still having the luck. They've got that momentum behind them. I don't think, think Klopp, 
will let them ease off. No matter what happens against Barcelona, Barcelona could come out and smash them 3-0 um, on, on Wednesday, I think. And uh, I think Klopp is capable enough to help the team put that behind them and then refocus on the Newcastle game. Um, so I... And I still expect Liverpool to win their last two games. And we, I think City will, I think Pepper said the same. He doesn't expect them to lose. So we've got to go out and win. Look, the, 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 the fantastic scenario would be if, if Newcastle beat Liverpool, Rafa does his old team no favours and uh, Brendan Rodgers does no favours for Leicester and City um, win the league on Monday night. That would be uh, absolute fantastic, um, you know, finish to the season for us. Will it happen? I think the chances are slim. Um, I, I just can't see Newcastle um, getting anything from the Liverpool game. I think Liverpool will be just too strong. Newcastle will defend like they did against us probably back in 2012 as well, uh, where we got two late Yaya Turi goals um, to ease our nerves and see us through. But I don't think anybody's going to do any favours and we shouldn't be looking for anybody to do us any favours and just go out, win our last two games. And, and and do win the title by us winning, not Liverpool losing. Ooh. Colin, um, uh, is it uh, how much of an effect will it have, if any, on Liverpool's running that uh, they're going to be given? There's almost certainly be given a bit of a chasing by Messi in in two games against uh, Barcelona. Uh, well, that remains to be seen, somewhat, doesn't it? Um, we we don't know what impact that will have. I mean. Uh, I think we said before that um, Liverpool's strong point, their attack, uh, it will be matched against possibly Barcelona's weak spot, which is the defence. Um, I think Barcelona will be looking to win that game comfortably on home ground. Uh, yeah, it is a yeah, it is at the new Camp, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so they'll be looking to, you know, they'll potentially be looking to get three or four goals, I think, in that game. But Liverpool are capable, as, as we've seen with Liverpool, they're quite capable of scoring away from home as well, uh, and it will be interesting but I'm not so sure it's, it's psychological if Barcelona stick six or seven past them I think that might um, destroy them a little bit but I don't see that happening if they get a good result in Barcelona if they get a, you know one all or a, even if they uh, come out two one down I think they'll be um, they'll feel uh, buoyed up but you don't know what it's going to take out them physically I think that's the you know the, the Premier League have tried to help them as much as possible so they're now playing um, playing Barcelona on the Wednesday and now they're playing on the Saturday night against um, um, Newcastle. Uh, then they're they're playing on the Tuesday, aren't they? At home, so they've got so only got Sunday and Monday to get over that game, and they've got to go into a um, uh, you know potentially a, a game that will put them in the in the. Um, Final of the Champions League again, so mm, it, it could be very interesting. Yeah. But my yeah, question, sorry, Colin, my question to you would be: Would you like it to be a close game in Barcelona? So, for instance, uh, losing one nil or two one or one all or something. So Liverpool's focus might just be on that second game against Barcelona. Uh, potentially, yeah. I mean, you could see it that way. Um, I don't think I'd want. Well, I don't think I'd want it to be close in Barcelona because that gives Liverpool a chance of, <laughs> yeah, qualifying for the final. But it, you know, even if they do, then it, their, their minds might be off the Wolves game, for example. So, <coughs> um, you know, it. it, it but but it, it still comes down to the same thing. And Ray said it: two one nil wins, and we won the title. Mm-hmm. Guys, I'd like so, to. So- I'd like to uh, finish off. 
uh, this particular podcast by instituting a new feature on the BFTB pod, which is things that have amused us in this last week. And one thing that really tickled me, and I have to admit, I, I did indulge myself in this a little bit, was after the derby, uh, going onto YouTube and watching the post-match analyses and uh, watching uh, Roy Keane and uh, Roy Keane and, and Gary Neville. Uh, continually, uh, basically repeating the same thing week after week after week is just highly amusing. And United, United are in absolute disarray. Ray, are they not? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, we were. I was chatting with Andy from our channel, Man City Fan TV, about this um, during the weekend. We were. You know, discussing the problems, and then we just said, after a few minutes, we said, actually, who cares? You know, <coughs> it's uh, what's happening is great. I mean, I think one one of the enduring memories for me is at the start of before the game started, uh, when there was a, there was a storm raining very heavily in Manchester, and the roof was leaking. <laughs> that was for me. That was uh, like an omen of what was to come against uh, for United. Um, if you're talking about funnies, the, the funny thing for me was. Uh, Sanchez and watching, looking at his heat map, (laughs) one touch in 12 minutes. Now, that one, he gets apparently £400,000 as a basic salary per week and he gets £75,000 for each appearance. So for one touch in 12 minutes, he got 75 grand. Uh, Nice work if you can get it. And uh, it, it's funny to see as well that the United fans, after all being behind Oli and, uh, you know, and United had won so many games on the bounce and they'd got past PSG. And I think mistakenly Woodward, the fool that he is, um, g- gave Oli the full-time job. And they've been terrible since then. They've got, I think, was it lost seven out of uh, ten games. Um, and now the fans have turned on Oli a bit and they want him out. So... Um, it was just a funny old game and watching Lukaku. Lukaku now is, he's just a practice board because the bounce, ball just bounces <laughs> off it. Um, you know, but uh, the one thing that was positive, I'll say, about that derby, uh, was Leroy after the game. He was asked about, um, you know, his situation and he said, I'm happy. It was very positive post-match comments, but you've got to be like that. But it, it seemed he was quite genuine in his comments and that just gives me more confidence that, you know, the talk of him leaving in the summer is is just that. It's just talk. Colin, what has amused you this week? Oh, um, a couple of things. And if I can, uh, you know, be so crass as to um, talk about one of my own tweets. <laughs> uh, watching the United, watching the United um, Chelsea game on Sunday after the City one. But nice to be able to watch it with your kind of heartbeat returning to normal. And of course, David De Gea, the greatest keeper in the world, <laughs> delivered another howler um, right on the stroke of half time. Uh, and that was amusing in itself. But um, uh, Gary Neville said, at half-time or after the game, Gary Neville said something about... Um, that's right, I've just found it now. Talking about David De Gea, he needs to clear his head, get away from football for the summer. Uh, and my tweet was, he's playing at Old Trafford. How much further from football can he get? <laughs> hey, he should have been at Burnley. He should have been at Burnley on Sunday. Trust me. Yeah. So, 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 so this got a lot of likes, and um, 
I, I was very pleased with that, if I, if I can be pleased with myself. But there was another, um, I don't know if you saw, uh, the guy from Football 365, John Nicholson. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Watched, uh, one of these, City Human Rights, how can we love City when they've got such horrible owners? Um, and um, he made a bit of a cock of himself, to be honest, uh, in a number of ways. But what really amused me was a guy, um, one of my, a guy I follow on Twitter, because uh, he'd gone on about the owners and their attitude to LGBT yeah. rights, uh, and this um, Rabin on Twitter, we follow each other, very good guy, had gone through John Nicholson's old tweets and found a number that could certainly be perceived as homophobic. Yeah. And oh, uh, John Nicholson has not been seen since on Twitter, I don't think, after that was put to him. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I remember reading that, and I'm, I did make a comment that John Nicholson was very quick to reply to any City fans uh, rebuttal or what about or changing yeah, the yeah. top or whatever and he was quick to say you know you, you you know stick to the topic or you know I could have talked about somebody else but I've talked about this one and you know just because some a lot of others are bad doesn't mean you're good and you know etc 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 and uh, he was very quick to respond to them but for Rabin he hasn't responded at all and that was my comment let's see how quick he <laughs> responds he's not been seen you know um, very interesting to see um what will happen uh, with his uh, job because I mean the comments were I, I mean it depends how you want to take them but they did seem to cross um, a line um, uh, of unacceptability it's certainly not language uh, and, and context that I would use um, and I and I can and blind with the best of them at times so I think that he personally stepped over the line so it will you know let's let's hope it comes to comes back to bite him in the ass. Yeah, I mean, that was funny in a cruel, funny sort of sense. But, I mean, to go back to United, something else which made me laugh was uh, the rumours are they're going to appoint Mike Feeler as director. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Now, now, now this made me howl because I mean, Mike Feeler, to be fair to him, he's probably a very good assistant uh, manager. And certainly, I don't know, um, being at the game on, on, on Wednesday at Old Trafford, it was very noticeable that about 70% of the time it was him in the technical area and not... Oleg and Solskjaer. Uh, certainly when I saw the TV afterwards, uh, Solskjaer looks like um, a rabbit in the headlights. He looked thoroughly miserable. And it was feeling in the technical area. So, um, no, I think he's probably, all, all the indications are, he's very good assistant manager, you know, uh, uh, someone good guy to have whispering in your <laughs> ear. Uh, very, he's very experienced, and he provides that experience that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't have at this level because he's been there. Let's be honest, Fielder's been there, done it, seen it, blah blah blah. Um, but now they're going to promote him to director of football, a job which he probably hasn't got the quality he's not suited to, uh, and take him away from a job which he is very suited to. Uh, and it begs the question: Who's going to be the assistant manager? Is it going to be Carrick, who's got no experience in the role? Um, who who are they going to bring in to um, negotiate transfers? You know, Alan Sugar. Um, <laughs> and and if, I, I was talking to a. One of the rare sensible, oh, you just remind me of that, rare sensible Liverpool fans. Uh, and he said, at least, you know, we may be neck and neck in the title race and it's getting a bit tense, yeah, but at least we can both laugh at United. And we say the, the difference between 
Liverpool and City and United is just it's it, it's it's like the Grand Canyon. It's a chasm. And, and, and you look at Liverpool. And we, you know, we don't like pros in Liverpool, but they've put a very effective structure in place. They make very few mistakes in the transfer market. They've got the right people in the right job, and they're, and they're running the right figures. Um, they've got a good coaching clock. You know, maybe in some ways he's a bit limited compared to Pep, but he's doing a damn good job there. And they're the only club up there challenging us. Uh, uh, and we've got a structure in place so you look at those two clubs on 91 92 points and we've both got good working structures in place that would would Maybe maybe we wouldn't be as good if Pep or, and, and or Klopp left the respective clubs, but we've got structure in place. I mean, you look at United, which is, if, if you excuse the expression, an absolute shit show, where they over, only open their mouths to change feet um, in, in kind of structural terms. And you look at, I think Arsenal will be okay, because I think Emery's a decent manager, but uh, they've fallen off a bit of a cliff. But I think if he gets the defence right, I think he's got the right, probably got the right tools in place. Um, obviously, you know what Pochettino's done at Spurs. Question is, will they will they spend money? Do they need to? Um, it looks as though they're going to get Champions League now, so that will um, um, kind of ease their financial any financial questions they have over funding the new stadium. But United just go from bad to worse, and and you can see them. You, you can see them dropping off a cliff. You look at Wolves. Wolves could finish about five or six points behind them mm-hmm. uh, if, if they win both their last two games. United don't. I don't see that happening. But, you know, you've got Wolves knocking at the door. You've got Leicester under Brendan Rodgers knocking at the door. And you can't afford to fall out of that top six because you've got two, at least two very good teams. Everton, Everton Marco yeah. Silva. You know, there's three, even Watford under Javi Garcia. Um, you've got four teams there potentially waiting to pounce if anyone falls out that top six and United at the moment possibly Chelsea look the most likely to do that if one does Uh, and of course um, they, United have never spent two consecutive seasons out of the Champions League uh, and uh, it looks like they're going to be spending next season out of the Champions League and they haven't got the Europa League to, to fall back on so, so that's a, a definite and I think unless something dramatic happens you can see them not finish not finishing in the top four places the following season unless they win the Europa League of course uh, and get in the Champions League that way so it could be that in 2020-21 uh, United are facing the third season out of the Champions League and that will hit them in the pocket quite badly. Now now the other funny thing was um, on um, our favourite forum Rourke, Red and White Cock um, <laughs> Liverpool fans not reacting, uh, well the reactions to our win at Burnley were, were kind of variable from the from the stoic to the completely hysterical. But the funniest one, and I don't know if you saw this, was one guy who is, isn't Liverpool-based, clearly, suggesting that all Liverpool fans should get down to the Etihad on Monday, May the 6th mm-hmm. and, and do, a re- do a repeat of the coach greeting. Well, of course, um, even Liverpool, even some of the guys on Raw were a bit... Uh, aghast at that suggestion. But can you imagine the reception they would get in, in uh, Bradford, Beswick, whatever you want to call it, from 50,000 City fans and Greater Manchester Police should they try that trick again? Mm-hmm. I saw that. That was extremely funny. Um, guys, that's pretty much everything I uh, I have on my little agenda, but um, I think we should possibly just uh, finish off with a, a couple of points. Um, one thing is about the, uh, the awards system, the PFA awards. Um, the well, Virgil van Dijk 
winning the thing was, you know, pretty predictable. But it was quite amusing for me anyway, the way that they'd um, sort of hedged their bets by putting uh, Raheem in there for Young Player of the Year at the age of uh, 24 and after a huge mm-hmm. number of Premier League games. And uh, and also putting Pogba in the team of the year. Um, what did you think about that, Ray? <laughs> well, um, let's look at... For those listening to the radio, Ray had his head in his hands at that suggestion. <laughs> well, um, let's, let's, look, let's look at the um, Virgil van Dijk first. Um, personally, I mean, you can argue he's made a difference to Liverpool defence. Yes. Is he a good defender? Yes. Very good world-class, knocking on the door. Is he the best... Uh, since sliced bread, which the media want us to believe, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, good defending has become world class. It's, it's the David de Gea syndrome. A shot hit straight at him, and he's, he parries it away. That's become a world class save. I don't, I don't buy that with uh, Van Dijk either. He's a very good defender. There's no question uh, about that. I personally, obviously, with some of my blue team specs on, thought Raheem Sterling could have got the career of the year, but. I won't argue against Van Dijk. Sterling at 24 uh, for the young player. Uh, I mean, this is voted for by the players. Uh, yes, he's too old. I mean, I personally think he should be about 21, should be the cutoff. But the cutoff is uh, you've got to be 23 years old when the season starts. And he was 23 years old when the season started. Now, other players have won it without much uproar. I think Hazard was 23 when he won it. Um, other players have been 23 or 24 and have had several seasons, at least two or three seasons in the Premier League. And they've won it in the past. So, is Sterling too old? As I said, there's not been much uh, of a Ferrari when other people have won it. Just Sterling, he's been playing for about seven years, too much, but it's an easy get out. Um, I never think that uh, players are very intelligent. Um, and although players want to be voted for by their peers, by the players themselves, I repeat, players don't always come across as very intelligent. And that's how you get Paul Pogba in the team of the season. Now, it's this, this is voted for, I think it's the voting starts in February, uh, middle of February or something, and goes into March. It's crazy, isn't it? It's, it's stupid. It's far too early. And, and people are asking me, oh, do you think, you know, who do you expect to win? I said, it's far too early when you got, at that point, you had ten, eight or ten games of the season to go. And I said, you could have Sergio Aguero banging in four hat-tricks and finishing with 35 goals. And surely he's going to be the player of the season. You can't base it on 30 games. Um, and the thing is, when Pogba, when they had the voting, Pogba was shining. He'd been crap the first half of the season under Mourinho. He had a few good games, scored some penalties um, under uh, Oli against... Let's be quite honest, um, easy opposition. If you look at the <coughs> pictures they had at the time, fairly easy opposition. And they had a good run. He had a good six or eight games. And that was banging. His purple pack was right at the time of voting. So he got voted in by footballers. And I just thought that's ridiculous. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a few players <coughs> who deserved it more, like uh, Son Min Hung. Uh, from Spurs, I think he was at a much better uh, season than, than Pogba. Um, and then I'll move on to the Football Writers Award, and, and Sterling won that, I think, quite comfortably. And I think some of the writers have looked at his off-the-field uh, activities as well, not just his on-the-field activities. And I just want to finally mention that Nick Nikita Josephine Paris won the female version of the Football Writers, I think it was, by one vote, and she's a Man City player as well, so I don't want to forget her. Mm-hmm. And of course, we can't forget that in the team of the year, we had six players. Yeah, almost when... Sky. <laughs> was it Sky that um, decided when they put the team of the season up? And we had six players, sorry, Colin, you, um, Liverpool had four. They decided to put Laporte as a Liverpool player, so it's five each. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything to, to pick up 
up on that. Um, well, one of the interesting kind of discussions around Van Dijk is, did he win it because he is so indispensable to Liverpool? Um, uh, and you could argue that he is completely indispensable to, to that Liverpool defence, and they wouldn't be anywhere near us if it wasn't for Van Dijk. And, and of course, the dodgy penalties and the offside goals and all that sort of rubbish. Uh, um, so, so, but in some ways, what does that say about Liverpool? Uh, you know. Uh, Whereas Raheem Sterling isn't indispensable, obviously he's a very important part of our team, but he's not indispensable. Look, if, if you lost Raheem Sterling for 10 games, yes, it would be a blow. But you've got someone like Bernardo who can come in, you know... Um, uh, if you lost Virgil van Dijk for 10 games, then then Liverpool would would find it a very different proposition. So this is an argument about, is he being rewarded for being the best player in an average squad that, that, that totally depend on him? Or is he, uh, is he being rewarded as player of the year because he stands out amongst his peers? No, I, I don't think it's relevant. Obviously, uh, attackers tend to get the glory. Um, and he's the first defender to win it since John Terry. And, and I think it's a players voted award. So, so most players will only come across him twice a year. Um, twice a season uh, and some by the time they voted in February as Ray said um, some more have played, some may have only played him once but it's the media hype around him we, 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 I say players aren't generally the brightest but when they've got that ballot paper in front of them when you hear all the media hype about Van Dijk Van Dijk Van Dijk you know it, it, it's a very uh, easy cross to put in the box because mm-hmm. um, that's the name in your head um, uh, and I think um, but, but at the end of the day only one person can win it you can't you can't say he doesn't deserve it because he has had an excellent season and um but, but only one player can win it. But, you know, he won't be taking up <coughs> an open-top bus tour of Liverpool. Whereas we could... St- I'd rather win... You know, if you offered me the choice of Sterling being the, the PFA Player of the Year uh, and missing out on one of the two trophies we've still got to play for, I'd say goodbye Sterling as Player of the Year, of course. Yeah. I think we all... Um, and I think the media hype, again, probably had a lot to do with Pogba because we know the media bias around United Liverpool. We know why they do it. And, you know, and Pogba has a half decent game uh, and it's all, oh, Pogba's back on form and, and Ollie's, Ollie's rediscovered, helped Pogba rediscover his spark and giving him some confidence. And, and, and again, the players, you know, the players read that and Pogba's a big media presence and certainly Roy Keane and, and Gary Neville were, were, were implicitly having a go at him, weren't they? Um, but whereas Sterling, um, I, I think the football writers, yeah, Sterling got 62% of the vote, which is huge. And I think, as Ray said, they have taken uh, more of an all-round view. But, you know, when we have a general election, there's like, what, 35, 40 million votes. And, and Sunderland North or whatever it is managed to count theirs within 40 minutes. You think we could have a more representative um, timescale to decide the player of the year? One, one person there, Ray, who's never won Player of the Year, is uh, someone that we should probably finish off by talking about. Sergio Aguero, this is now, is the, the fifth season in a row now. He's matched uh, Shearer in being uh, the striker who's got 20 goals in five consecutive Terry seasons. Hen- Terry, uh, Terry Henry uh, only uh, got, uh, was Terry on Terry T- Henry. Terry Henry got it, got it yes, but... Uh, <laughs> Terry Henry, it's, it's a lot easier than trying to put on my fake French accent. Yeah, I mean, Sergio is just 
class. He's now got more goals than Henri got in his career in England, I believe. And he's still going strong. And I think he's got two more years on his contract. And the way he's going, I just, I just pray that he can stay fit. He can uh, overtake win yeah. and and to be second in that all-time list of uh, Premier League goal scorers. I, I mean, Shearer's way ahead. He's got 260, and I think Shearer um, was playing before the Premier League was formed as well. So he's never, you know, he's never going to get near that record. But to come to get ahead of Wayne Rooney, I think that'd be a, a feather in his cap. As for Sergio, he's only he's been here since what 20, uh, 2010, 2011. Fantastic player, our all-time leading goal scorer, uh, and still our uh, talisman going forwards. And he's work. He seems to be working harder than ever under Pep. And uh, and I wish he can finish the season off with a couple of hat tricks and break another record. That would be very, very nice, and uh, would certainly expose the idiocy of, of when these uh, awards are, are are voted for. But I think that's a good spot for us to finish off. So uh, we'll do that by just uh, giving a word of thanks to our uh, two other uh, Bolt from the Blue members. And we're going to start off with Colin Savage. Colin, thank you so much for coming on and blessing us all with your uh, insights and uh, those amusing anecdotes, especially at the end. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure. And also, thank you, uh, Ray. We're really, really grateful for your contributions as well. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic to be on with you guys again and uh, look forward to it next week. Okay, guys, so let's finish off in the usual way by wishing all of our fans uh, a great time and hopefully seeing out this uh, back-to-back title win. So we'll wish you all uh, a great time. We'll be back with you after the next game. And so, of course, as we always say, have one on us and up the blues. It's about time that your mind took a holiday